0: All right, I don't need a mic in order to diss you. I just wanted to have the yeah. people notice that we're dressed very what? similarly today. And uh, and you know, Troy's our a picture, he's yeah. our we need a camera, you guys can take a shot of this. And and I, I just you know, you I you're, know, it's coming, you know, it's coming, you do because you're growing your hair out and it's no longer like 20 something, it's more like me, and now you're. And now you're, you're you're wearing a shirt like me. I just think that as we're talking about identity, we need to pray for you, yeah, brother. So yeah. <laughs> and I'm getting my haircut this week. And you're getting your haircut this. Oh, oh, oh man, get your resume ready too. No, doesn't Troy do a great job? No, thank you. Good job, brother. Troy is. I mean, I. I and it goes out saying he's just an incredible worship leader. I. Uh, yeah, he is. It's really, it's really true. I, I meet with Troy just every week and, and every week I ask him the same question, are you happy? How can I keep you happy? you know and, and just uh, we we really appreciate his leadership here at our church and it's really awesome. We are in a series on identity and discovering who we are as as human beings, who we are before God and in our standing before Him. Most importantly, what does He say about us as human beings? We'd want to be attuned to that. And what does it say about our identity? This is kind of the first six-week installation that we're halfway through, or actually five out of six weeks through right now, kind of leading up to uh, Christianity and the cross and then starting in November 1st after we do some things at the end of this month and in October we're going to start the second six weeks of this series talking about what our identity is now as followers of Jesus Christ. We're using the book of Romans to guide us in this because it's an amazing book in the first eight to nine chapters telling us about our identity, our standing before God. So if you are new to Scottsdale Bible Church just maybe this week or the next few weeks, you picked a great time to visit us and uh, to join us in, in this teaching series that we're in. So let's do this. Let's bow right now and pray, and then we'll dive into His Word. Father, thank You for Your grace and for Your goodness thank you that in history past leading up to today you have spoken to us that you have reached out to us even as we're going to see today in our fallenness that you have not left us alone to our own devices or wondering who you are but you've shown that to us and so God as we open up your book now and read your word I pray you'd speak to our minds and our hearts help us to learn more about ourselves and most importantly you and I pray this in Christ's name amen So the reason that identity is so important is because if you and I just go with the flow of culture, then we should not be surprised if our identity becomes the identity of the culture around us, right? It just makes sense. So for instance, if all you do is watch Oprah and Dr. Phil and get your identity from them, then you're going to have a therapeutic identity that guides you in life. If all you ever do is watch the news channels like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, then if you don't be surprised if all you have is a political identity and those around you know you as a political person. If all you do is follow Harvard Business Review or Donald Trump or Murdoch or any of the business stuff going on and that consumes you, then don't be surprised if your identity is more of a business identity. And by the way, this goes true for everything. If all you ever do is watch sitcoms, I know that none of you ever do that, but if you did, then your identity is going to be a Hollywood identity, and wouldn't that be scary? And so the reality is, if you think about it, if you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, or maybe even those seeking God here today, were just to go with the flow of society, Just follow our culture where it leads us, then it goes without saying our identity is going to become one of those things around us. We're just going to get caught up in the flow of it all, and that at the end of the day is not, well, it's not a good thing, and it's not even a very thinking thing to do. And so what we're doing in this series right now is simply opening up God's book, the Bible, specifically to the book of Romans, and trying to break the chain of just following culture today and saying, what does God say about us? What does God say about who I am all the way from birth up to the grave? What does he say that my identity should be? What are the things I need to understand about myself and him and even the world around me that would help me in my identity? And that's what we're doing in this series. And we're doing it, as you can see on the screen there, through a simple I am statement. I am fill in the blank. And each week we're adding a different thing to the blank there. So if you were with us in week one, we talked about the fact that I am an image bearer. I'm an image bearer made in the wonderful image of God. It's Genesis chapter 1. When God made humankind, He said it was very good. And He was extremely pleased. He made us thinking. He made us deeply feeling. He made us creative. A little lower in the angels, just like Him in His image. And God said that's a really good thing. And so we have value and we're loved as creations of God. But then we notice in week two that we, however, are fallen. That's Genesis 3. That we have fallen from the great heights of being an image bearer. And now before God, he says that sin has entered this world. It has entered our lives. And we deal now with a fallen world and a fallen soul every day. And if that were not bad enough, God then even says that we're in trouble, even deep trouble. That's what we've explored the, the last couple of weeks. That our less than perfect nature has frustrated and even angered our Creator because we're far from the ideal that He made us as. And someday, He says, there's going to become a reckoning time, a judgment for all the things that go on in this world in which God's going to enter in and make things right, but it'll be a time of judgment. So add it all up. We are image bearers who have fallen, and are in trouble, even deep trouble. And as I said last week, aren't we glad that the story doesn't end there? But we're almost to the bottom of our roller coaster experience, I promise you. We started off high with image-bearing. We've now explored some of the depths of what's wrong with us. We're going to finish that out here today. And then I promise you, next week and in the weeks to come, leading up to Christmas, it's going to be all positive, uplifting, gospel-oriented stuff. But before we get to that, in continuing our journey of who we really are, there is a fifth thing that we encounter in the realm of truth, and and the fifth thing that we need to own and honor, and it's core to our identity, believe it or not, and that is that we are a people who have a tenacious nature inside of us to constantly try to work hard to get out of the trouble that we are in. In other words, not resigned to sit on our laurels or wallow in this trouble that we feel on a spiritual level before God. We take the bull by the horns and we doggedly set out to do something about this fallen world and the fall that we feel. And though our intentions are good, And though I'm going to own today that our world does a lot of good things, you're also going to see that it also has created some other problems before God just by the nature of us constantly trying to get out on our own. In fact, here's what I want you to get your head and your heart around today. And this is kind of a cumbersome statement that I'm about to give you, but it's worth working through. And if you think that the statement I'm about to give you is cumbersome, you should see where I started on Monday with this. Because it was really cumbersome and our creative team looked at my main point for this Sunday and they said, you can't say that, it's goofy, it's too long, and so we honed it down. And this is what we came up with. But this will help you in adding clarity to what I'm trying to say today, what Romans says and who we really are. And here it is, it's the only thing I need you to remember today. And that is that our dilemma is, is that we feel the fall, we work hard to remedy it, And yet we are still stuck. That's what I need you to own with me today. we all feel the fall. We work hard then in our lives to remedy it in our own souls and in the world around us. And at the end of the day, we are still stuck. That's the reality that the book of Romans is going to lay out for us today. Now, I know this is somewhat cumbersome. Surely it's very progressively linear in orientation. But we need to understand this statement today because it's very, very practical for our lives. And so let's break this down into three bite-sized chunks, analyze each one, then we'll put it all together in a whole in just a minute. So first, notice that I'm suggesting that we all feel the fall. We all feel the fall. It's true. Most people I know and most every book that I read, modern day today or even historical book, in some way owns the fact that something is not right with humanity and that we are in pretty serious trouble as a human race. And I would suggest to you this morning that on at least two significant levels, most people sense the trouble that we're in. First, they obviously sense that there is something wrong or not right with this world. In other words, it is in chaos and not working the way that it it was originally intended. And the reason that we know that is true and that it's really a no-brainer is that you and I all experience evil and human suffering. Bad things happen to good-hearted people all the time. And one of the first questions anybody examining a worldview must ask is, how do you explain that? How do we explain that this world has evil in it and suffering and that bad things happen to good-hearted people? Where does that come from? And the Bible says that that comes from the fact that we live in a fallen world and that fallen things happen to fallen people all the time. That this world is not the way it was intended to be. There is something wrong with it. And I would submit to you that we all sense this. And then I would submit to you, secondly, that we also sense in our most on, honest moments that there's something wrong with us, that it's not just the world around us that has something wrong in it, but, but, but it's us, ourselves, each of us individually, in our thoughts and our feelings and behavior, in which we realize there's something wrong inside. We feel things that we rather not admit. We think things. That we don't want to tell other people and then we even do things that go counterintuitive to the things that we know are right to do and we want to do and again what is that about why do we get depressed anxious angry frustrated hurt well at the very least we realize there's something not right with us and so we sense the deep trouble both in this world as well as in us my simple point is we feel the fall before we've even read the bible And what it says about who we are, we intuitively feel it inside of us. And by the way, that is affirmed. That feeling and sense that we all have is affirmed as we look at what Romans says about us. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 2. We're still in chapter 2. We'll move on next week, but Romans chapter 2 actually tells us about an internal mechanism that each of us has that clearly reveals to us when and if things are not right. So turn with me to Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 15 as to what it says. If you don't have a Bible, flip over your outline. The scripture is there or look up here on the screen. It says this, It says they, meaning all humanity, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Focus on that little phrase where it says their conscience also bears witness. What does it bear witness to? The fact that things are either right or wrong around them. Folks, one of the things that the Bible makes very clear is that all human beings have a conscience. And this is actually what makes us radically different from the animal world, that we have a very attuned conscience to right and to wrong. And though the Bible does go into great detail about our conscience and gives us more details in telling us that your conscience can be weak or it can be hard or different things like that, nevertheless, the truth is we all do have a conscience, and our conscience exists to tell us when things are right in this world, when things are wrong in this world, when things are right in us and wrong in us. And notice with me even further, this is fascinating, that Romans 2 also tells us, that a conscience must have some sort of standard associated with it in order to sense right or wrong, and that we all also have a standard that we base our conscience on. Isn't that interesting? And So, for instance, the Jewish nation who received the written law that Christians now have in their Bible, and much of Western society has been based on, their standard is obviously the Mosaic law all the commands and warnings in the first five books of the Old Testament. So Romans 2, verse 17, just two verses after the one we just read, says it this way. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law, so link law there to conscience. We all have a conscience inside of us. A conscience needs a standard. So for those who are Jewish or Christian, they have a standard called the Mosaic Law that they base their conscience on. But what about those who don't have the Bible, you say? But what about those who don't have Christianity or Judaism in their lives and have never read what God says about His standard and our conscience? What about for them? Well, for this, look at verses 14 to 15 of Romans 2. Isn't this fascinating? It says, For when Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, here it is they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them so don't miss what this is saying for those who do not have the written standard of the bible it's telling us that god has still put a corollary standard In their minds and in their hearts from creation, an objective sense of right and wrong, very similar to his written law. And this standard, intuitive to them, is the basis of their conscience. Isn't that fascinating? So nobody who is made in the image of God ever has an excuse But we all have a conscience, and we all have a sense, an internal sense of right and wrong, confirmed by God's Word to base our conscience on. C.S. Lewis did a lot of writing on this in his groundbreaking book, Mere Christianity. And in this book, he argues in the first part of the book that every single culture in the history of the world Christian and non Christian alike, every single culture that is alive today, whether it's in Mexico or Africa, the Far East or here in the West, he says it's interesting. You look at every single culture and they all have a shared sense of right or wrong, a shared sense of values that they adopt and own as a culture. And at the end of the day, they all seem fairly similar and they all have a same sense of what is. Eventually, right, and what is eventually wrong. So, so for instance, he he uses this example. He says, Name a culture in which they would label it courageous to run in battle. Uh, Try to think of a culture like that. Try to think of a culture that would have a value system that it is a courageous thing to flee when you're in battle. Lewis says it might be smart to run in battle, but it's never a courageous thing to run in battle. No culture, no human being would ever say that. And Lewis asks, where does that come from? The Bible would affirm that value, but if you don't have the Bible, where does that standard of right and wrong that we base our conscience on come from? And he says it comes from God. In fact, it's his greatest argument for the existence of God, the fact that we all have a conscience and we all have an internal compass, a standard, that we base it on. Now, why is this important? The reason that this is important, that Romans 2 goes into this kind of detail on this, is that I would submit to you this is the reason, now don't miss this, that we all feel the fall. That that whether people want to admit it or not, whether somebody wants to go this far in their understanding of God or not, whether they're honest with themselves or not, we all feel the fall. We all have a conscience. We all have a standard of right and wrong. And we all know that something's not right here on planet Earth. This will become very important to own as we move forward this morning. So to be sure, when you and I see or hear about mass genocide in Rwanda, something inside screams this is not right. Animals do these things, but we're not animals. And so there's no way that we can justify senseless violence and killing. It is never right. We feel the fall. When we see the poor on our own streets, hungry and homeless, we're bothered by it, aren't you? Life should not be this way, we say. And we're right to feel this. We have a conscience. We have a standard. Something's not right. We feel the fall. When we see children or spouses mistreated and or abandoned, something inside us tells us that this is not good. When we see loved ones struggling with depression or anxiety or loss or grief or even physical problems, we feel helpless in trying to help them. But we also say this can't be the way that God intended this world to be. Something has to be wrong. We feel the fall. And then most weighty, when we're honest with ourselves, we feel our own messed up thoughts and emotions. We experience our own senselessly sinful behavior. And then we say, gosh, the trouble has even affected my own soul. The first thing we need to own is that we all feel the fall. All of us sense that there's not something that's not right in this world and even us. And it sets us up. For the second thing that we need to understand about our identity, and this is the clincher, listen close, this is the second part of our progression, and that is that our response to feeling the fall is that we then work hard to remedy it oh, I'm telling you, this is so true. It's so human, if not so American, and you'll see where we're going here in a second, but just think about this with me. The average person's response to the fall that we feel is to then work like crazy to try to remedy and reverse it. And so look with me again at Romans 2, because it clearly shows us this pattern that we're about to explore. Look at verses 17 through 20. Look at what it says to the Jews, and again, by extension, many of us who are now Christians and living here in the West, who base our standard of right and wrong on the Scriptures. Notice what it says in verses 17 to 20. It says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure, now here it is, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, don't miss what it's saying here. It's telling us that for those of us who have a conscience, who have a standard of right or wrong based upon the law, that very soon, and probably rightly so in some ways, we begin to act on it. We see ourselves as guides and lights and instructors and teachers trying with all of our might to right the wrong, to make the crooked pathways straight, to make a difference and dent in this world. We work hard in our own strength, to reverse the effects of the fall that we sense in this world and in our own soul. Before Almighty God, we say we're going to right this wrong, God. We're going to take this world back. We're going to make it a better place somehow to prove to you that we can do good as your creation and that maybe you will smile on us. This is a tendency that we all have inside of us. And isn't it interesting? Verse 14 then says the same is true for Gentiles who don't have the law. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. In other words, they do the same thing. They take the law in their hearts that their conscience tells them is right, and they act on it. By nature, they're going to do what it says. They're going to try with all their might to do good. And so I know some of you are wondering where I'm going with this, but but just as a result of this today, simply notice, because this is core to our identity, that our world today is filled with countless activities, thousands of them every day, that human beings do, of which I would submit to you that 90% of them are targeted to reverse the fall, to remedy it, and to try to better our standing before Almighty God. And when seen this way, you can start to see why I say we all feel the fall, and then we work hard to remedy it, or trying to correct its effects, to right wrongs, to please God, to make this place better and more acceptable. And the majority of our activities are motivated by this desire, whether we realize it or not. You know, to be sure, I want you to think about four simple areas of our lives, four things that almost all of us are are somehow involved in, week in and week out, and see if you can't pick up on what Romans is trying to to get at here. I want you to first think of the whole area of volunteerism. Uh, volunteerism is a way to better this world and deal with the fall that we all feel. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in the states reported in 2001, just last year, that 64.3 Million Americans did some form of volunteer work from September 2011 or 2010 to September 2011. That's almost half of American adults did some form of volunteer work. And even more to the point, 70% of these people did them within a nonprofit organization. One in three volunteered within a church. And even more revealing, the median hours volunteered was an average of 51 per year, which means half the people did more than 51, half the people did less, but that's still an average of almost one hour a week that Americans volunteered in addition to all of their other stuff going on in their lives. And though to some of you that are really into volunteerism, this might not seem like much, it just blows away all the other statistics that we see around the world. We are a volunteering nation, no matter how you slice it. As a result of all of this, registered with the IRS is 1.4 million, uh, nonprofit agencies, charitable agencies in the United States, and it's actually upwards of 1.8 million when you factor in churches that don't have to register. Clearly, we're a volunteering nation. I would submit to you many people volunteering to make this world a better place. Now hang on to that, notch that away, and notice me a second area that we try to make a dent in this world, and we'll label it charitable giving. Charitable giving. Some of you know this, but America is hands down the most generous nation on planet Earth today. We are. We give more money per capita than any other nation. I don't say that in a bragging way because we're also the most wealthy nation But one of the things that Americans show in their behavior and activity is that we are trying to right wrongs through giving of our money. According to the American Association of Fundraising, their council's annual report on philanthropy, Americans gave more than $298 billion to charity in 2011. Folks, that's a staggering amount of money, and it happened in a post-recession year. And I know how some of you think, you're thinking, well, with big corporations, of course, 70% of the money given, $217 billion was given by individuals and families as opposed to corporations and foundations. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we are a generous nation. The average gift was over $1,000 and 80% of Americans gave some money to at least one nonprofit last year. And no matter how you look at it, we give money to remedy the effects of the fall, to help out those in need. And speaking of religion, that's the third area of working hard I want you to notice with me that humanity engages in to make a difference. I would submit to you that humanity engages in a lot of religious activity as a way to try to reverse the fall and please God. Now now what am I saying here? As many of you know, Christianity is not the only world religion today. In fact, there's five major world religions and hundreds of offshoots. You have Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism as the five major world religions. And of all the major world religions, get this, according to the World Evangelism Research Center, out of an estimated 6.2, probably now about 6.5 billion people on this planet, more than 5.6 billion Are involved in some form of religion. Does that surprise you? It it, it did me when I first confronted that statistic. I mean if you listen to Dawkins and Hitchens and some of the more loud atheists today, you would get the idea that there aren't that many people involved in religion. But that's not true. The vast majority of the world's population is involved in some form of religion. And just so that we can put this all in perspective, most world religions, when you look at them, are clearly about doing something in order to gain acceptance with some form of deity or God. In other words, what almost all world religions have in common is that you need to pray, you need to sacrifice your time and money, you need to attend certain religious gatherings, you need to attain a certain level of morality or live by a prescribed code of ethics. This is something common to all the major world religions, and I would submit to you that people gravitate toward that in part because they're trying to deal with the hole that they feel in their soul, the fall, and they want to try to remedy that. I'm going to show you in just a second here how Christianity, I believe, stands incredibly unique when it comes to what it's offering in the way of truth, in bringing us to God, but just suffice it to say right now that a lot of religious activity that our world engages in is trying to do something in order to remedy the fall that we all feel. So we volunteer, we give money, we get religious, and then unique to America, and I just throw this in here because we all need to understand ourselves, is this pattern of ethic that I see in the last 200 years of American life that's just ingrained in you and I, and I call it the work hard, be responsible, live right approach to God, in which it shows that as Americans, we've bought into the culture around us, and by golly, we're going to reverse the effects of the fall. So tell me if this isn't true. This is how most Blue-blooded Americans live their lives without even thinking about it. We work hard, we make money, we provide for our families, we save for retirement, we take vacations, we have some hobbies, we live as moral as we can, we send our kids to good schools, we watch them get married, we enjoy our grandkids, we eventually retire, we travel a bit, we give some money to charity, and then we make sure we cap it off with a really nice funeral. This is the way that most Americans live their lives. And here's the tragedy in it. I mean, we're going to wrestle with whether all this is good or bad, but the tragedy in it is that then we somehow assume that amidst all of this responsible living, God certainly must be pleased. That God certainly must look at our lives and say, well, gosh, you guys are not like Attila the Hun from history and you're not like some of these bad guys from history. I mean, you're actually living pretty good, responsible lives, so in you go. Heaven is yours. I'm pleased with you. You've reversed the fall up in your own soul. You've worked really hard. You live responsible. You live right. And so you're exempt from any judgment or anger that I might have with the human race. We tend to think, as Americans, that that must be how God responds. You know, to be sure about this, this working hard ethic, the, again, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported about a decade ago that, that 26 million Americans spend more than 49 hours a week on the job. 11 million Americans actually spend more than 60 hours a week on the job. And you're saying, well, big whip, we work hard. But we'll compare this to Denmark. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to diss the Danes here. I mean, Rasmussen is a very common Danish name, so I'm going to pick on myself. Daryl, our pastor at large, says quite often that his church has been taken over by a Viking, and he's correct. So Denmark, the average Dane works about 37 hours per week. And takes a full five weeks of paid vacation a year. And that's common in Western Europe. If you were to compare the hours worked a week in America to almost any other developed nation, save for maybe Japan, we work like crazy. I'm gonna suggest to you in a minute that that's not always a good thing, so I'm not bragging there. We just need to own it because it's become part of our identity. And looking at this list, give me another click here. What I need you to see is that this is ingrained in us as human beings to try to deal with the fall that we feel. We volunteer. We give money. We engage in religious activity. We work hard and we're responsible and we live right. Why? We do that because we feel the fall. And we want to make this world a better place. And we want to somehow please God and show Him that maybe we're not as bad as the Bible tells us. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, and I get this, because I used to think this way too. You're saying, well, Jamie, what's wrong with any of this? I mean, shouldn't we try to do something to fix the mess that we see? I mean, you're making it sound like this is not a good thing that we do these things. And you're exactly right. In part, what I'm trying to suggest today, what I'm trying to pry your fingers off of, is a mindset that we have latched on to that tries to convince ourselves that if we can just work really hard and try to reverse the fall that we feel, that somehow God will be pleased, somehow He will smile, and even worse, somehow He'll say, good enough. Good enough. You've reached me. There's no longer any anger. There's no longer any judgment. You've made up for all the bad things that humanity has done. And so you have reached salvation on your own. The Bible says you can't do this. In fact, here's the third thing the Bible tells us it says that we all feel the fall, that we work hard to remedy it, (laughs) and we're still stuck. That's what the Bible says. Now, Now, listen close and bear with me on this point. In one sense, if you and I were having a cup of coffee today, I would own with you that, of course, it is good and right to make this world a better place. Of course. It is good and right to work hard, live right, be responsible, give to charities, volunteer, help others, and even develop a meaningful spirituality. No one, least of all God, would say that this kind of activity is necessarily wrong or without merit. It helps those around us. It builds a better society. It makes us more caring and involve people. Those are all good things. But listen, listen to the degree that we do these activities, to somehow gain eternal acceptance with God, to somehow prove to him that we're okay in his sight, or even to try to reverse or soften the effects of the fall on a spiritual level in our soul, God says this is fruitless and futile. That you're barking up the wrong tree, you're going down the wrong path, that you're using the wrong resources, your hard work, to make your spiritual life work. I mean, God says all of this might help and even impress other fallen human beings. Think about that statement. All of our hard work might impress your neighbor who's also fallen, who's also in the same mess that you're in. But God says it doesn't help me. And it doesn't help you and me. Why? Listen. Because God says all your hard work, all your own effort, as a way to try to appease him and reverse the sinful fallen soul that you have, is like trying to put out a forest fire with a water pistol. He's saying it's just not enough. You don't got enough water in you. You have enough water to impress your neighbor. You have enough water to set up a food bank. you got enough water to give a little money. That's all good and fine. But you don't have enough in you to appease God. And so here's where we're left with, and this is why it's so important to see this, folks, is that all this hard work we do, in one sense, is productive on a pragmatic level in life and society, but at the same time, it is counterproductive when it comes to God. Isn't that interesting? And so we're in a bind here, if you're grabbing onto this at all. All this hard work that you and I are told to do daily, day in and day out, that is good and helps the world become a better place, doesn't count, God says, when it comes to your standing before Him. You need much more help than your good works could ever provide. And the more you allow your life to be entrenched in those things as a way to please God, the more you're going to be entrenched in your own denial. And you'll never understand the grace that he offers you in Jesus Christ. Look at how Romans 2 begins to share this with us. And then in chapter 3 gives us the knockout punch. Romans 2 says in verses 12 to 13, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will also be judged by the law. Pause right there. So simply saying that any of you who make any mistakes based on this conscience, based on the standard you have, either the law or the one written in your hearts, all of you who make any mistakes have now fallen into sin. And the reality is all of us have made mistakes. All of us feel the effects of the fall in our soul and in the world around us. And so I like how Galatians 3 then, it's not here on the screen, but write this down if you're taking notes. Galatians 3 verses 10 and 11 tell it to us in black and white language. It says, then, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, because it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous shall live by faith. What's that saying there? It's saying you can't live a perfect life before God. You can't measure up. He says you're too fallen You're too far removed from your original creation ideal. And as a result of that, all of your hard work isn't going to get it done. And so at the end of the day, God says, you need something more. You need outside help. And thankfully, God has provided that more and that outside help. And His name is Christ. His name is Jesus. The Bible says that 2,000 years ago, When Jesus came to this earth, it wasn't just another man being born. It was the second person of the Trinity. God from all eternity come down to earth here. And he did two things that forever changed our standing before God. The first thing he did is that he lived a sinless and perfect life. In other words, based on God's written law and Jesus' conscience, he lived a sinless and perfect life. And then he died... The death that we should have died on a wooden cross and so theologians say it this way jesus became our substitute in both life and death he became our substitute in life living the life that we should have lived and he became our substitute in death dying the death that we should have died for our sin And only because of what Jesus has done in His life and in His death do you and I have any chance to make ourselves right with God. And that's why the Bible says that the moment that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, where you stop striving, where you cease working, where you realize your good works aren't going to cut it, and you trust in His sufficiency, what He has done for you, the Bible says at that moment you have come home And you have come into a right relationship with god in which he says now seeing your life aligned with jesus that's enough that's enough i fully accept you not because of your good works but because of christ and the life that he lived the death that he died and your faith and trust in him that's why jesus christ is so important So let's wrap up with this. I want to give you a visual that hopefully you can take home with you. Hopefully you saw up here on the stage we put some big block letters for you to take with you in your mind's eye throughout this week. And we put the first word here, do, on your left, and then we put the second word here, done, on your right. And here's what we need you to simply understand. The way that your fallen soul will tell you that you need to get right with God is to do more things. I mean, that's what I'm telling you. Every day you wake up, you're being screamed that. And it doesn't help that this is what our world thinks will get us right with God as well. Again, we feel the fall. We work really hard to remedy it. But at the end of the day, you're still stuck. Christianity, please hear this, is not spelled D-O. It's not spelled do. I know that's hard to hear in our highly pragmatic activist society today, but that's not going to get it done. Somebody once told me that Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's spelled done. You see, Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for you and your willingness or unwillingness to accept Him. That's what Christianity is. That's what the gospel is. It's about the fact that you feel the fall, that you've worked long enough and hard enough to try to remedy it, but you're still stuck. You can't do it on your own. And only when you get to the point in life where you realize that and embrace Christ and Him alone have you now understood rightly your identity before God. Do you see that? The reformers 500 years ago said it this way, faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation. End of story. It's faith apart from works in Christ, not yourself for this world. Two alones that you need to have there. Faith alone and in Christ alone, and that's the gospel. And it's my hope throughout this entire series, it's my hope for any of the journey that you have here at Scottsdale Bible Church, that that's the gospel that you embrace. Because as we're going to see next year when we study the book of Galatians as a church, Galatians 1 tells us that any other gospel, any other approach to religion or life or spirituality is a lie, and it just won't work. You must spell your faith with D-O-N-E, not with D-O. Works are good. They help make the world a better place. They don't help you get better with God. Only Jesus can do that. Some of you are ready to receive him today as Lord and Savior. Some of you finally understand today with this clear explanation what the gospel is. And you're ready to stop striving and working on your own. And you're ready to receive what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so if that's you here today where you sit, I want to pray with you right now. I want the rest of you to bow to and join me in prayer, but I'm going to pray specifically for those of you who are ready to receive Christ. And if you do that, if you pray this prayer today, feel free to let us know. Feel free to let us know that you accepted Christ today, and we can help you in your spiritual journey. But let's close our time together by praying together. Father God, I thank you that your Word Uh, Tells us things that, though it might be counterintuitive to the world that we live in, they make sense when we look at them reasonably. Lord, I don't think there's anybody here today that would argue with the fact that we feel a fall. We all know something's wrong with this place. And Lord, I think most of us could also agree that we work hard to remedy it. And that, Lord, when we're honest with ourselves, we still feel stuck. It just never seems enough. And Lord, that might be true with the world, but then we even talk about you, and it, it, it's never, never enough. We know that we still feel distant. Something else needs to bring us close to you. And God, I thank you that in your eternal plan for our salvation and your eternal plan for our eternity with you that you saw fit to give us Jesus Christ, and that it's through him and his perfect life and his death on a cross that we can now be brought to you with complete forgiveness, with complete wholeness, as we now have a right relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, there's some here today that that finally makes sense to them, and their hearts are ready to receive Christ. So right where they sit, they admit that they feel the fall. They admit that they've tried hard to remedy it themselves, and they admit that they're still stuck, and they feel their own sin. And so Lord, right where they sit there today, they, they, they accept you. They receive your Son, Jesus Christ, into their lives as Lord and Savior. And God, as anyone would do that today, I pray that you would allow them to mark this day as their spiritual birthday, as the day that they came home to you. And that, Lord, they would also share that with those around them and even with us as a church that we might journey with them. Lord, we know you will for all of eternity. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the the sense that it makes to our lives. Lord, more importantly, thank you for the joy that it gives us and the new lease on life. For those of us who have accepted Christ already, God, I pray that today would be a continual reminder that we don't buy in Uh, to the works mentality of our world, but that we would realize that it is continually through Christ that we are accepted by you. We thank you for that in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.